Well, it's kind of hard to believe we're here. After a couple of weeks of me being sick, honestly, I'm still not feeling uh, great. Throat's just not recovered yet, so. Uh, but it'll be okay. Really happy to be here. If you remember um, last year when we did VGU, uh, I also had this bout of sickness back and forth, back and forth, and I had to cancel a bunch of weeks. So my two theories are um, the enemy really doesn't like theological education. Or September is just something in the air is bad for me. There's a supernatural explanation, natural explanation, maybe both of them are true. Tonight, uh, we're talking about the doctrine of the natures of Christ. Notice there that it's in the plural. That's intentional. That's not a typo. Because what we're going to see today is that Jesus, the Son of God, possesses two natures. He has a divine nature and a human nature. So we're talking about the natures of Christ. And this truly is one of the more difficult doctrines to study, uh, kind of similar to the doctrine of the Trinity, where it's beyond our understanding in some ways. Um, this isn't in your paper, but Louis Burkhoff says, the church accepted this doctrine not because it had a complete understanding of the mystery, but because it clearly saw in it a mystery revealed by the word of God. It was and ever and remained ever since for the church an article of faith far beyond human comprehension. So the thought there is what we're going to talk about tonight is beyond human comprehension. I want to say that up front. So uh, I, hopefully you'll have a good grasp on the actual doctrine and, and what the orthodox position is on the nature of Christ. But that doesn't mean all your mysteries are going to be solved. We're going to say, okay, well, I understand that 100% completely with no questions in my mind. Um, but what that quote you know, said basically was God's word teaches it. And so since God's word teaches it, we got to believe it. Um, and so it's, it, it's hard to understand, but must be believed. So let's pray before we begin to ask for God to help us because we need his help on a topic like this. Father. Um, God of all wisdom, um, Holy Spirit, we believe that you inspired this word, that it's, in, that it's perfect, infallible, and errant, sufficient, um, straight from your breath, God. And so with that said, um, we believe that every single thing it says is true. Um, and um, sometimes that's hard for us to understand. God, your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways are not our ways. Um, and so... Help us, God. Give us understanding and insight and wisdom um, and knowledge of you, Jesus, and help that lead us to love you more. All for your glory. In your name, Jesus. Amen. So if you have your paper, I hope you do want to um, start off with this Chalcedonian definition. I uh, put here the date on it, um, 451 A.D. And what I was planning to say is something like, man, how cool that we're going to like read this um, ancient you know, almost confession of the church. And I thought, wait, we read more ancient things every Sunday because, you know, the Gospel of Mark is like 400 years uh, older than this. But this seems so familiar when it doesn't feel as ancient. For some, you know, sometimes it feels very unfamiliar, but we don't think of that as so ancient sometimes. But this is from 451. This is just a definition that came up trying to um, explain the nature of Christ. 
And we don't believe this because it's an authority, but we think it reflects the proper teaching of the Bible. So I want to read it, and we'll reference it a couple times. But I think it's just a great, succinct explanation of who Christ is, what his nature is. Uh, the one thing that's kind of hard to understand, I think, in this definition, we're just going to read the whole thing, is this phrase self-same just means exactly the same. So anytime it says self-same, it's kind of weird. Just think exactly the same. So let's read this together. Um, I mean, I'm just going to read it. You listen. Following then the Holy Fathers, we all unanimously teach that our Lord Jesus Christ is to us one and the same Son, the self-same perfect in Godhead, the self-same perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, the self-same of a rational soul and body, co-essential with the Father according to the Godhead, the self-same co-essential with us according to the manhood, like us in all things, sin apart. Before the age is begotten, of the Father as to the Godhead, but in the last days the self-same for us and for our salvation, born of Mary the Virgin, Theotokos, which would be like God-bearer, um, as to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The difference of the natures being in no way removed because of the union but rather the properties of each nature being preserved and both concurring into one person and one hypostasis. Not as though he were parted or divided into two persons, but one and the selfsame Son and only begotten God, Word, Lord, Jesus Christ. Even as from the beginning the prophets have taught concerning him, and as the Lord Jesus Christ himself hath taught us, and as the symbol of the fathers hath handed down to us. Can't get more clear than that, right? We can just we can just close it, be done. Uh, this is such an awesome statement, biblical. It stood the test of time, like churches, you know, for the past, you know, I'm not going. Janet can do that math. 2023 minus 451. I'm not going to do that one publicly, though. I couldn't do seven plus five on Sunday. Okay. The first thing this teaches is that Jesus is God. From that definition, you see it say the self-same, perfect in Godhead. So the exactly, exactly the same as God. Truly God. Co-essential with the Father according to the Godhead, which co-essential just means completely equal. Before the age is begotten of the Father as to the Godhead. Louis Burkhoff said, The proof is so abundant about the deity of Christ that no one who accepts the Bible as the infallible word of God can entertain any doubt on this point. Um, this is something that is constantly under attack, the deity of Christ. And so it's just really important, even today, in 2023, in Blount County, to emphasize um, that Jesus, the Bible teaches that Jesus is God. Just think about the Gospel of Mark. It's been so awesome just to gaze upon Christ week after week after week. Him walking on water, something only God can do. Him creating bread, something only God can do. Him forgiving sin, something only God can do. Him having authority over demons, something only God can do. And all this is leading up to the confession that we are studying Sunday where Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Um, and so that's that first half of Mark is like, who is this? And ultimately, Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. This is what the Bible teaches, John 1. Uh, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, this is just a, a really crucial, you know, to defend the deity of Christ. Um, it doesn't get much more clear than John 1, 1 through 3. It says, in the beginning was the Word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this Word is God, and at the same time with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. This is Jesus Christ. We, we see that in the context in verse 14, which we'll talk about later. At the end of the Gospel, um, Thomas witnesses the resurrected Christ and says, My Lord and my God. Pretty amazing, huh? He sees a human being standing in front of him, and Thomas says, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus said to him, Have he doesn't say, Don't call me God, I'm just a person. He doesn't say, You know, don't worship me, I'm an angel. No, he doesn't say anything like that. He says, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. This is John 20, 28. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Thomas says, you are my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, yeah, you believe that because you see me, but anybody else who believes that is blessed and you can have life in my name. Pretty awesome. Romans 9.5, Paul says, the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Colossians 2.9, Paul again, for in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Reminds me of these phrases in the definition. The self-same perfect in Godhead. Exactly the same as God. Paul would say, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Titus 2.13 says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches very clearly that Jesus is co-eternal, co-equal, and possesses all the divine attributes of um, God. Everything that God is, Jesus is. Everything that the Father is, the Son is. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So who else could, but God could uphold the universe by his word. Okay, that's what Jesus does. But it also says uh, right there in Hebrews 1 that he's the exact imprint of his nature. It's a mirror image is the, the phrase there. So the New Testament clearly portrays Jesus Christ as God in human flesh, the fullness of God, not part God, half God, semi-God, but 100% God possessing all the divine attributes that God has. Number, point number two, Jesus is man. From the Chalcedonian definition, it says the self-same perfect in manhood. It says that Jesus is truly man. The exact same of a rational soul and body. The exact same co-essential with us according to the manhood. Like us in all things, sin apart. But in the last days, the self-same for us and for our salvation, born of Mary, the virgin, as to the manhood. So, I don't know which way you lean theologically, but when we talk about Jesus being exactly the same as God, that probably blows your mind. It should blow your mind at least. But it might be, especially if you've grown up in church, in a, in a good church, familiar. What might feel more unfamiliar is this idea where, you know, that definition says... The exact same co-essential with us according to the manhood. 
So not only is Jesus 100% God sharing all his attributes, simultaneously he is just like you, 100% man. As much as he is God, he is man. So this you know, part of my throat that's sore, Jesus could relate to that, I'm sure. You know, maybe September was a bad month for him too. Whatever they may have called it, I don't know. Okay, John, uh, God became man. It's clear in Scripture, John 1.14. We said we were going to cover it right here. And the Word became flesh. So in context here, the Word's eternal in verse 1, with God from back in eternity, and the Word is God. All that's in verse 1.1. 1, 1. And then in 1.14, the, the Word is becoming flesh. This is incarnation. That's that word. It just means becoming flesh, made flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. 1 John 4.2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So this, this word flesh just means human nature. Uh, he, he became human, just like us. You can touch him, you can feel him, goes through the same things, has the same bodily processes, has the same mind, everything exactly the same as human nature. Uh, we see he was born of a virgin in Luke 1 through 2, this supernatural, miraculous birth, completely setting Jesus apart from the human race. But nevertheless, the, the, uh, I, I recently heard somebody say um, that the, the birth wasn't so much a, a virgin birth. The, the birth was extremely natural. It was the conception that was miraculous and supernatural, right? So that's the miracle was that Mary was a virgin. She had never had sex before, and all of a sudden she's pregnant. And the birth part was extremely natural um, because he's fully human. With that, you know, as the definition says, Jesus had a material body and a rational soul. Even after his resurrection, he says in Luke 24, 39, See my hands and feet. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So, first of all, Jesus has a material body, even right now. Um, completely flesh and blood, bones, um, ligaments, muscles, all that stuff. Jesus has it. Jesus grew up, Luke 2.40, and the child grew and became strong. Can you imagine God in the flesh growing up and, and learning words and memorizing scripture? As the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. The Bible teaches that Jesus got tired in John 4, 6, when he's weary from his journey. He got thirsty on the cross. He got hungry when he was in the wilderness being tempted. We can be so tempted to, um, we can be tempted to push out the humanity of Christ. I mean, we worship him. We talk about how he upholds the universe by the word of his power. But we're not being biblical if we diminish his humanity. That he walked, that he ate, that he got tired. All these things. Not only that, but he has a rational soul, just like us. Uh, John eleven thirty three. you know, when he sees Lazarus, Lazarus is dead, and there's all this fallout with the family, and... 11.33 says he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. 
consider, you know, in context, if you're here on Sundays, um, the deep size in Mark, where he sees this deaf man in, in, in size, and he, he, he's confronted with the Pharisees' unbelief, and he sighs deeply in his spirit. Because he has a rational soul. He's, he's fully human, just like us. Ultimately, he was made like us. Hebrews 2.14 says, He himself... Uh, sorry, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. So God himself, the second person of the Trinity, the Son from all eternity, before Abraham was, I am, right, took on human flesh and became just like us. Jesus was completely and truly a man, a physical body, a human mind, a human soul, human emotions. He was just like us in every way with one exception. And that is that Jesus was completely sinless. The Bible teaches Jesus' humanity was completely morally perfect in thought, word, and deed. Which is just truly amazing if you think about it. I mean, you want to go one day trying to be sinless imagine in thought, word, and deed. One hour, right? Uh, Jesus went 33 years, never once failing in any way. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So that shows he can sympathize with our weaknesses. He, he, he can say, I know what it's like to have a sore throat. I know what it's like to be tired. I know what it's like to be hungry and how weak you feel. I know what it's like to um, have loved ones die. I know what it's like to, to walk in the path that you've walked. But one who in every respect, this is Hebrews 4.15, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is really good news. So Jesus can fully relate to us. He can say, yeah, I know what that's like. But at the same time, he has succeeded in every area where we failed. And that's really good news because then he can actually help us in what we're in. Does that make sense? If, he would, you know, if, if it's just two sinners failing at the same things, who's going to lift each other up? But Jesus can say, I know what you're like, but I've succeeded in every way you failed. 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. I think this is an amazing verse when you think about how much time Peter spent with Jesus. I mean, just moment after moment walking, you know, uh, um, in, in the sermon on Sunday, they go from Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi, and I think, don't quote me on this, I don't have my notes in front of me, it's 120 miles, so they just walked 120 miles. And they said in the commentary I read, that's a day's journey. So I was like, sheesh, they're, they're walking. Uh, but I guess, you know, we've got to do it. But think about, how, okay, 120 miles walking with Jesus. And that's just one trip of, of three years that Peter spent. He could still say at the end of it all, he committed no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus was completely sinless, completely righteous. While we are completely sinful and completely lacking righteousness. But in the gospel, the sinless one takes our sin so the sinful ones can take his sinlessness. Beautiful. Um, so Jesus, fully God, fully man, like us in every way, like God in every way. Um, while, of course, being like us without our sin. So, Jesus is God and man. That's our third point. Scripture clearly sings out these two different notes. Like, think music. 
Clearly, there's two notes in the scriptures. There's one note that sings out, Jesus is God. I hope you see that. Romans 9, 5, Christ, God over all. And the other note is that Jesus is man. These two notes are being simultaneously sung out by the New Testament. So how do we harmonize these two truths? This is where our minds begin to bend. Uh, we start hitting mics and stuff like that. Sorry, Patrick. Uh, we figure this out through the doctrine of the hypostatic union. That should be in your paper. Hypostatic union sounds super impressive. I recommend you memorizing that phrase so you can say it to impress people. Um, it's not nearly as um, difficult as it sounds. Um, it really just means one person union. It's this idea that the Son is two natures, one person. Son has two natures while being one person. If you go back to the definition, um, it says about halfway down, acknowledged in two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The difference of the natures being in no way removed because of the union but rather the properties of each nature being preserved and both concurring into one person. Not as though he were parted or divided into two persons, but one and the self-same Son and only begotten God, Word, Lord Jesus Christ. So, um, to contrast, like the Trinity, if you remember the Trinity, is there, uh, one God, three persons. So there's one nature of God and three persons within, within God. Three, three persons, right? Three persons, one nature. When we talk about the natures of Christ, there's two natures, one person. So one person, the Son of God, has two natures. So the Son of God, Jesus, um, has eternally existed as the Son. For Abraham, I, I, I am, is what he says. So... But at the incarnation, when he becomes flesh, when he was um, you know, conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb, the second person of the Trinity took on a human nature while still fully possessing the divine nature. Remember, the Son is fully God. And God cannot change. God's nature is immutable. God can't incur any sort of change whatsoever. So when the Son takes on human flesh, He takes on human nature to His person in a way that doesn't change His divine nature at all. So His divine nature remains fully intact, um, as it says in the definition, unconfused, unchangeable, indivisible, inseparable. And so both properties of each nature are preserved in the one person. So the eternal Son of God permanently took to himself a human nature in such a way that keeps both natures fully intact. Hypostatic union. Simple way to say it is Jesus is 100% God and Jesus is 100% man. But you also have to recognize that Jesus is one person. 
And this should absolutely blow our minds, right? This should make us worship Jesus. I mean, how does this, this is so beyond us. But it's the truth of the scriptures. Okay, next up is what does the biblical doctrine of the hypostatic union rule out? On, on your paper here, I've got um, these Christological heresies. Oh, I forgot about that. That's just a, a, there's a quote over here in Jesus is God man. Beautiful, simple way. This is from early church history. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. So he remained fully God, did not change at all in his, in his divine nature, and became what he wasn't and took on um, a human nature. So what does the biblical doctrine of the hypostatic union rule out? Here's some Christological heresies. Um, docetism is this heresy that Jesus just appeared to be man. So, you know, maybe he was some sort of ghost. You might get that kind of phrase from like he was manifested and you, we might, you know, archaically think like, oh, so he just appeared to be man. But no, remember Jesus says, hey, touch my hands. It's, that's, that doesn't work. Adoptionism is that Jesus was a special man adopted to be Adopted by God to be the Son. Often this adoptionism is at the baptism of Jesus. When uh, the, the dove descends, the, the voice says, This is my Son with whom I will please. So with this, that would deny that Jesus is fully God. right? If it's, he is fully man and then especially was called out by God. Modalism denies the, um, the persons, the distinct persons within the Trinity. So really the, the Father and the Son are the same person acting in different ways. This one, this is a heresy, uh, but it's one of those that just kind of happens from time to time on accident from like really well-meaning people um, who, you know, the Trinity is really hard to understand. So if you ever say like, well, you know, God first revealed himself as the Father in the Old Testament, and then he became the Son. And then after the resurrection, he became the Holy Spirit. But he's really all the same person. That's heresy. Um, the Son and the Father are not the same person. They're, they're distinct. They, they, you know, as we see in John 1.1, 1, 1, the Word was with God. Jesus has eternally existed as the Son in relationship to the Father. Eternally begotten. Arianism, the next one, is that the Son is uh, lesser in deity, not truly God. So maybe like the, the special creation of God or something like that. Um, so it's like maybe God's best creation, a demigod of some sort, an angel. Um, Apollinaire, however you say that one. I thought about listening to how to pronounce these words, and then I was like, ah, I'm just going to roll with it. That's what I normally do. And I. This one is, uh, he has a human body and a divine mind. So he's flesh, but um, his, his mind, his uh, soul is just God. We have to reject that one as well. We'll talk about that one in a second. Nestorianism is, he's got two persons in one body. So he's got the person of uh, the divinity and the person of humanity, these two different people kind of struggling within this one person. We never see a struggle within Christ like that. We never um, see we language or a distinction between Jesus' human and divine nature like that. Um, I can say, we got like a short or something, huh? I'm not touching. I can, I can say the second one. Eutychianism. 
I'm not going to try that next one, but this one is the idea that, it, that Jesus is God plus man. Like a mixture, like when I make my eggs in the morning and like swirl the yolk around and get it all mixed up together. And so this would mean that Jesus is some sort of like third nature. Does that make sense? So he's not God, he's not man, but he's a mixture of both. So he's not really God. He's not really man. He's some third thing. He's other. We have to reject that one as well. Today, um, these show up pretty regularly. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses uh, teach Arianism so that the Son is lesser in deity, not truly God. Uh, Mormons believe that Jesus was created. They think God was created too, but... Uh, the, the big one I want to point out is Oneness Pentecostals. So uh, if you think of like um, the apostolic um, church, like over here, like they're here and everything, uh, teaching modalism so that God's one and he shows himself in three different ways, um, thus denying three persons of the Trinity. Um, and of course Islam would deny it, atheism. So... Um, Obviously, the doctrine of Christ is under attack pretty regularly, so it's really important to, to know these truths and to stand upon them. And um, also, I think it just shows, you know, the, the, uh, what the dignity of human nature that God became man. So, like, uh, the human nature is a thing that should be respected and is being redeemed. And this last point is why this matters. Besides just the apologetic response, you go to a Jehovah Witness. Uh, sorry, a Jehovah Witness comes to you at your door, and um, you know you can go to John one one and kind of show you know they have the bad translation of it or whatever. But um, or you're talking to somebody who goes to an apostolic church and they talk about this modalism and deny the Trinity. It's important to um, be strong and have a you know a good biblical orthodox view of Christ, but not just apologetically, but this matters for our eternal destiny. Um, the gospel hinges upon these truths. Number one, I want to talk about the necessity of Jesus being fully man. To be our substitute, to be your substitute, Jesus Christ had to be fully man. He had to be related to us. He had to be one with us. He had to be able to represent us. That's what Hebrews 2, if you want to turn to Hebrews chapter 2, this would be really good to... And this should just make us so thankful. Hebrews 2, verses 16 through 17 says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You see that? He had to be made like his brothers, us, Christians, in every respect, body, soul, mind, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, if you look at all those heresies we just covered, I mean, most all of them rule out the full humanity of Christ. Thus, ruling out his ability to be our kinsman redeemer. So, if he didn't really have a, a human mind, 
how could he represent and die for the human mind? I mean, how many sin? Is it just your body that sinned? Is it just your mind that sinned? Um, there's this quote um, from you know church history: "What is not assumed is not healed." So if Jesus is going to redeem us, body, soul, spirit, all that, He's got to become exactly like us. That's what Hebrews two sixteen through seventeen teaches. Um, but also, it's important that. This manhood was sinless, as we've talked about, because if he had sinned, Hebrews chapter 7 teaches us that he would have to atone for his own sin. Hebrews 7, 26 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need. How about that? Like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So number one, we need a human to represent humans. You need a human representative, and then you need a sinless human representative. Because if he had his own sin, he'd have his own problems to take care of. But Jesus, as the sinless human can represent you and pay for your sins, needing no payment for his own sins. Number two, we see the necessity of deity. With all that said, if Jesus was just a mere man, we would still be lost in our sins. We would not have the Redeemer that we needed. If it was just a sinless, regular guy with no divine nature, we would still be lost in our sins. Isaiah 43, 11 I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Only Christ's death on the cross could be of such infinite value. One sinless regular man dying on the cross, maybe that could pay for one person's sin. I don't know. I don't want to, you know, be a, um, well, I don't think about that. But uh, one man's death paying for so many sins that could only be the valuable death of the Son of God on the cross. Number two, only Christ, the Son of God, could bear the full wrath of God. I mean, every sin laid upon His shoulder, bearing the, the wrath of eternal hell. Not just one person's eternal hell, but consider how many people. Number three, only Christ would be able to supply the fruits of His work to all who believe in Him. Because if He was just a man who died, okay, He died. But... Jesus resurrects from the dead God over all and is able to apply the benefits of his death to sinful humanity. So we see the necessity of manhood to be our sinless kinsman redeemer related to us like us in every way. At the same time we see the Savior must be God because only God can be the Savior and perform such a work. So Jesus fully God and fully man 100% God, 100% man in this hypostatic union is just exactly the Savior that we needed. Nothing less could have saved us from our sins. Which, by the way, probably should show us how serious our sin problem is. That this is what it took to redeem us from it. I mean, just this amazing, mind-blowing hypostatic union. I love this quote from Francis Turretin. says, Man to suffer, God to overcome. Man to receive the punishment we deserved. God to endure and drink it to the dregs. Man to acquire salvation for us by dying. God to apply it to us by overcoming. Man to become ours by the assumption of flesh. God to make us like himself by the bestowal of the spirit. That's so good. Uh, and with all this said, let's be clear. 
this isn't really about the natures of Christ, but I think it's a logical consequence of it. With what we've said and how, how Jesus is exactly what we need for salvation and how he is so fitting and perfectly suited to provide us salvation, how could we ever believe that salvation would be found anywhere else? Do you see how the doctrine of the natures of Christ, what, what was required for our salvation, proves the exclusivity of Christ? Uh, Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, imagine a scenario where God himself takes upon human flesh, walks around this broken world for 30 years, suffering sore throats and death of loved ones and um, temptations and persecutions and ultimately dying on the cross, hands in his feet and hands and crown of thorns upon his head, not only the physical pain, but the supernatural wrath of God being placed upon him for sin, bearing the weight of hell himself, then rising again from the dead and then saying, just come to me whichever way you want. I mean, just the, the amazingness of Christ's work and what took place to accomplish it shows us that there is no other way to God. Stephen Wellham, this is a Old professor of mine says, Our Savior and Redeemer is utterly unique. This is why there is no salvation outside of Him. He is in a category all by Himself in who He is and in what He does. In fact, because our plight is so desperate due to sin, the only person who can save us is God's own dear Son. It is only as the Son incarnate that our Lord can represent us. It is only as the Son incarnate that He can put away our sin stand in our place, and turn away God's wrath by bearing our sin. Only Jesus can satisfy God's own righteous requirements because he is one with the Lord as God the Son. Only Jesus can do this for us because he is truly a man and can represent us. Identification requires representation. In all these ways, our Lord is perfectly suited to meet our every need. Without the incarnation in Christ's entire obedient work, there is no salvation for humanity. So I hope you, you know, see these natures of Christ. You can say, okay, Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. Hopefully maybe that's a correction for you in some way. Um, hopefully you've learned some vocab words, hypostatic union. Um, you know, some, maybe you got some exposure to the um, Chalcedonian definition. That's all good stuff. But I hope you just walk away saying, our Lord is perfectly suited to meet our every need. That's why I want you to walk away and, and just have a greater appreciation and adoration and worship of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, 100% God, 100% man. Joel Beakey, this is my last thing I'll say and we'll pray and be done. If we have him and he has us, then we have everything. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done. Taking, though you were in the form of God, taking on flesh, taking on the form of a servant. God, have blown our minds with the truth of who you are, Jesus, and we love you. God, expand our minds to know you more, to think about you rightly. Um, God, protect us from wrong thinking about you. Protect us from um, compromising the gospel um, based on getting you wrong because um, this is eternal matters. 
Um, so, God, make this a church that stands upon your word, um, that stands boldly on who Christ is, that can confess these truths with um, clarity and conviction um, to a lost and dying world. Um, so, God, just embolden us with this truth and, and impress it upon our hearts and give us confidence in your scriptures. All for your glory. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, I venture to ask, you may have any questions you want to ask before we go? Not that I'll be able to answer them necessarily, but anything not clear that I could clear up? All right. If you do think of anything, feel free to come to me. Um, email me, text me, call me. Besides that, love you guys. Have a great night. See you next week. We talk about the work of Christ. Probably didn't so close.